Hey there, girls, boys, and whiz kids. Today on Entrepreneur Shit, we are talking to Kyle Shannon from Storyvine. Kyle is a serial entrepreneur who has seen some incredible successes and major struggles in his career. His current company, Storyvine, produces templated, guided videos for clients in industries like healthcare, political, pharmaceutical, and more. Our conversation with Kyle covers a full spectrum of life as an entrepreneur, including fundraising, firing people you care deeply for, loneliness, and Kyle's own special term, the enthusiasm gap. Entrepreneurship is a podcast by and for entrepreneurs. We talk to founders and innovators about the shit they're going through and how they work through the reality of building a business. I own the domain, the unhirables.com. <laughs> nice. um, most entrepreneurs I know, um, while they could have a job, prob- you know, like either choose not to or just can't. I had a, I had a, uh, after I sold a previous company, I went to a headhunter. I'm like, oh, well, I'll get a real job. And, and, you know, I sent, sent my resume in and he was one of those high end exec, you know, headhunters. And he calls me up and he goes, Hey, can you come in? I want to, I want to talk to you. I'm like, yeah, okay, great. We're going to go in. We're going to jam. I'm going to, I'm going to get a job. And, uh, and I go in and he, and he pulls out my resume and he's like, yeah, I mean, this really impressive and this really impressive, like what you've done really, imp- I can't do anything for you. And it, and it was because nothing on my resume matched anything else. It was, <laughs> it's just sort of a shotgun blast of experiences. So what was the job? Uh, it it was just he was just a headhunter. Oh, got it, got it. Like I was just looking for like a like a high end creative position in an sure. agency or something like that. But there was nothing in my resume that he could actually say this guy could do anything. So, <laughs> so I think at this point I'm officially not hireable. And how um, long ago was that? That was probably 2003. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So so my background is a, a sort of twisted path. I started out uh, in the storytelling business. I got a degree in acting. Uh, moved to New York, started and ran a theater company for four and a half years. So technically that's entrepreneurial, but there's no expectation you'll ever make any money, right? So so, so running a theater company is like every three months is a new show. It's like starting a new company. So you got a new cast of characters, literally, right? You got a new play. You try to get audiences to come see it. You spend two months of your life putting on a show and 12 people come. And you know, so I did that for four and a half years. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Just like little startups. Each it's time totally you do it, little. You have, it, to, well, you have to create it, market it, yeah. cast it. Wow. Exactly. And then because I'm smart, I thought I'm tired of doing free theater. I know I'll write myself an acting career. So I got into screenwriting uh, and, and uh, wrote seven screenplays in two and a half years. Um, and because... I didn't have an agent as a writer because I'd never written anything. We started a fake management company to represent ourselves so we could get our scripts read, which we were successful enough at that we had to actually take on real clients because <laughs> be, because you couldn't just keep sending out the same <laughs> couple of people. So, Looking for a new manager. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so that actually turned into a bizarre kind of business we ran on the side. We didn't really make any money at it, but um, but we got a bunch of our friends, you know, gigs. Um, and then um, sort of all along that time, I was doing desktop publishing as my day job. So did a little bit. I got, I tried to do the actor waiter thing 
but I got fired because I was just a shitty waiter because I hated people. <laughs> um, and I successfully bartended for a bit because I liked drinking. Cheers, by the way. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> um, four, so I, four and you can talk shit. Directly sponsoring. Yeah, yeah. As a bartender, I could talk shit. You could talk shit. And and I, could, yeah, I could be cynical and bitter and make uh-huh, fun of people. Uh-huh. So that was pretty successful. And then, yeah. and then after that, I did uh, desktop publishing. And then the sort of the big shift in my life was um, kind of in 94, 95, you know, I started seeing, um, I was living in Manhattan at the time, I started seeing um, ads on the side of buses for like Wired Magazine and, and Mondo 2000 was out. And I started reading about this thing called, you know, the internet and the World Wide Web. And I started figuring out, you know, what's the internet and, and learned a bunch. And then in, uh, in the fall of 94, I thought, I know, I'm going to start an online magazine. And the more I learned about HTML, it was almost identical to how, how you think about structuring a screenplay and how you think about structuring a website were almost identical. So as I thought about what a website was, it was, it was very similar. You start with sort of high-level sections and then you sort of dig deeper and dig deeper and dig deeper. And so in, um, I guess it was October of 94, I went on vacation with my wife. I took my, my Mac at a 660 AV. There's, there's going to be geeks listening to this. They'll know what that is. It's a shitty Mac. (laughs) Um, but I took it on vacation and I, and I built the, the first edition of, of one of the very first um, online magazines. We called it Urban Desires, and it was my wife and I started it. And it was, it was an art and culture magazine. And, and so got back from that vacation and didn't really know anything about the internet or what it was, but I knew I had to get the files from my computer to some... I found like a server in California that you could upload files to and it would put things on the internet. I didn't know anything about it. So I like upload these files and... A month later, I got an email from someone that said, hey, there's a full-page article about Urban Desires in Liberation, the Parisian newspaper. I was like, what? And so so that next Sunday, I went to the international newsstand in Times Square, and I bought a, a, a copy of this newspaper, and I, and I opened it up, and sure enough, there's a full-page article with screenshots of this thing I designed on vacation like two months ago. And I, like, I had an epiphany in the moment. I'm like, holy shit, the world just changed. Because here was the thing I knew. You, you, know, you were talking before, um, you know, doing a new play is like starting a little mini business each time. I essentially put the same amount of time and energy into making that first edition of Urban Desires as I put into any play I ever did. And within a month, it was internationally recognized. Mm-hmm. You right? used the same yeah. kind of formula to do it too. Not, not even the same kind of formula. Just it was just the same amount of energy. Like like you know, you do your day job, and then you go home at night, and you put all this energy into doing a play. And and I went home, and I put all this energy into doing learning HTML and putting up this thing. But now you had a world audience, not twelve and a, people. And a month in a later, it, yeah. it was you know, and it, it was also a time in the internet. There was nothing cultural on mm-hmm. the internet, mm-hmm. so putting up something cultural like a, like an art and culture magazine. Um, it stood out, you know, pretty quickly. But but that was that was just real clear that holy crap, the, the, this this internet thing is going to change things. And then in putting that together, I met the guy who ended up becoming my co-founder of Agency.com, and that was founded in, in early 1995. Was one of the very first digital web agencies. And so, that what, what, is, what does that mean? What were you guys doing? We were building websites okay. for, for primarily for Fortune 500 companies. We started out the, the first project we did. Um, Chan, who was my partner, 
um, was the the marketing guy for Vibe magazine, and he had created Vibe online. So I had created this original magazine, and he had done the first, you know, um, digital, you know, version of a of a Time Inc. magazine. And so so we met, and he he was talking about. Um, he keeps trying to sell ads to big companies and they keep saying, well, we don't have a website. And so he said, I think we could sell websites to big companies. So he had contacts at Time Inc. So we went and we pitched the Sports Illustrated. Um, they had a swimsuit video coming out and we're like, hey, we can build you a website for that. And they hired us. Please let us build you a website. <laughs> that was our first website. That was our first website. That's awesome. And then, and then it was just insanity. Then we got uh, Time Inc. Consumer Marketing and we, and we got GTE and Hitachi and MetLife. We, we just landed all these Fortune 500 companies all in a row. Um, and, and within nine months we were 45 people and it was just insanity. Nine months to 45 people. Yeah, wow. and five years to 2,200. How was it managing wow. all yeah. that? Um, the, the, I feel like just managing the personnel would be one of the hardest pieces. Cause you, yeah, in fact, sort of three years in, I had three people walk into my office and introduce themselves to me and quit within two weeks of being hired because all three of them had the same experience. Hey, I just wanted to introduce myself to you. I heard you were pretty cool, but, uh, I've been here for a week. I don't know where to sit. No one's introduced themselves to me. I don't have a computer, so I'm just going to leave. I was like, what? I, I haven't even been added to payroll. Yeah. It was no, but it was literally like, like they showed up for work and no like no one took them in and and so I ended up I quit. I was chief creative officer of the agency and I I gave that to someone else and I I became chief people officer cuz I'm like we're screwing up people's yeah, lives yeah, here. Yeah. And and you know, it was one of those things where we had grown so fast that it's common sense that that um when someone starts, you say hello to them and you <laughs> tell them what they're going to do and you sit them at a desk, right? Like that's common sense, right? But at a certain point, you're so big that everyone assumes someone else is doing it. And so what I came face to face with was, oh, you know, it, it's all fun and games like until something like that breaks. And, and it, it took us probably a year, year and a half to build onboarding processes and put in a real HR group and, and we put in training. I ended up building an internal university within the, the company so, so people could um, um, mentor one another. And we sort of put a whole framework in place for that. And so, was it part of it that you guys are just growing so quickly yeah. too? I mean, it, it sounds totally like the, that. Yeah, the pace of it just the sounds like it was insanity. insane. Yeah. 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 Uh, you and I have known each other for a while. I had no idea agency.com got to 2,200 employees. 2,200 employees at its That's biggest huge. and 200 million in revenue. Yeah. Wow. And so then, in, in what, you sold that? We sold it. We, we did an IPO on the NASDAQ in December of 99. And then the internet shit the bed in, you know, the dot-com bubble burst in kind of April of 2000. And it didn't hit our business until the following November to December. And then we went from, this, this was fun. So, so zero to 2,200 in five years, and then 2,200 to 450 in six quarters. Wow. Yeah. Were you, so, and, and, so and you were all the still stuff in that, that I role? did, huh? You were still in that same role yeah. where you had to lay these people off yeah. and explain to them why. Yeah, so and, all the stuff oh, I built way, to no. keep people, yeah. now we were just figuring out how do we get rid of people and how do we, it was, it was crazy. Jam. Jesus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. talk, talk about that a little bit. What was it like to go from, I mean, you, you mentioned like we need somebody in this position so we're not ruining anyone's lives anymore. Like, right. in, but you were t speaking in reference to um, people not being like 
or uh, onboarded and so forth, but I feel like the layoff part would be even more intense. Yeah. Especially when you get to a point where you're IPO'd, you're having to downsize. Like, what, what? How do you first approach something like that? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of pieces of it. There was so so, the first office that we closed when when we started that downturn piece was actually the Avon Colorado office. It was the Vale office. And how many offices did you have at that time? We had nine in the states, two or three in Europe, and I think we. We had the starting of, of one in, in South Korea okay. and maybe one in, in Singapore. Okay. But we were, we were pretty big at that point. Um, but, um, you know, we're sort of six months into the dot-com bubble having burst. And because we were an agency, you know, it, we, we had a revenue. Like, we actually had something we were delivering. It wasn't a vapor company. Um, but what ended up happening is as we got to the end of 2000 and, and you know, they started looking at budgets for the following year. That's when the clients started panicking, right? Um, so, so there were kind of rumors going around that we were going to close offices or we, we were going to do layoffs, and there was no plan for that. And, in fact, we had said to the, to the Avon office like two weeks before, um, I know there's rumors, but we're not going to close you. And then the last week of November, the, so, so that office was in Beaver Creek, and it was I think it was like 50 people, and then um, – we had a client that was their primary client that was like a $10 million a year contract. And they went to $20 million for the next year. So they said, you're going to need to staff up. So we got new offices. We moved to Avon. We staffed off. We went from like 50 people to 100 just to service that client. So that client calls up two weeks after we promised we're not going to close that office and said, hey, um, I know we said we were going to do 20 million next year. It's probably going to be more like 100,000. So, and that was like 95% of that office's revenue. So, so that's Jerry Colonna. I don't know if you know Jerry Colonna. He's an entrepreneur up yeah, in, yeah. In, in Boulder. He talks about you don't truly become a CEO until you're confronted with a choice where there's no good answer. And this was one of those. So, so we had literally just said to the, like, one of the offices of the nicest people in the in the entire network. We're not going to close you, and you know, ninety whatever three percent of the revenue just disappears. So then the choice is: Do you close that office, which was hard to get to anyway? That was the single client of theirs that was you know most of their revenue, um, or do you cut ten percent of the staff globally? There's no good answer to that. So that first cut was really hard because the answer was actually really clear. We had to close the Avon office. But the emotional impact of it was horrific, right? On, on you or just kind well, of the, the, the I organization? Mean, mostly on them. But, oh, it, yeah. you know, it's like, you mm -hmm. know, no, we're not going to close you. And two weeks later, we're like, yeah, we actually are. How, how did you approach that? Like just as straight as we could. What, the, the only way that, that I've found you can be successful in any sort of tough news like that is to be very transparent about why you made the decision because people will will disagree with you on what decision was made but if they understand the why um they can at least process it and the other thing that i did was i hopped on a plane and i flew out to i flew out to avon and i just sat in the office for a week and talked to you know every single person that wanted to some didn't um, and you know, we did it was, because it was our first layoff. It was, we gave them a pretty generous severance package and, and things like that. And, and we tried to do everything we could to, you know, make their landing as smooth as possible. But that, that was the first of five, 
five major layoffs in six quarters. So every quarter from that point forward, except for one, we had major layoffs. I feel like if I was looking at the, that situation, I would be, it would be really hard for me to talk to the, all of these individual, individual people because I would start to think about and empath, try to empathize with their circumstances. Like, I moved here from across the country to live in Avon because I thought this was going to be a thing. At had least for- every one of those conversations. But the, while it was hard, I, I found it easier to sit across from them and look them in the eye than just either have a phone call or or just do it in an email and you know what well you, some you of, see some these of the huge layoffs heard. happening where it's just like an announcement and a shitty severance check that <clears> seems <throat> like the way you handle it is a lot more humanizing like i recognize that this fucking sucks it sucks for me i want you to see that i actually care about yeah. you as a human and i'm not a sociopath yeah yeah we tried to do that uh, you know the, there are some situations where if you do a layoff, you really do need to just get people out of the building as quickly as possible, do it as, as cleanly and clearly as possible, because it can be super chaotic. But this is one where you had to do some transition and, and you know, we had files on servers and things like that. So, so I, you know, um, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, I have a degree in acting, so, so <laughs> I, 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 am, I am probably overly empathetic. And it, yeah, it, it, was, it was really hard, but you know, again, I just went back to here's why we did it. You know, if confronted with this decision, you, you know, you've got to come up with a reason why. Here's the reason why. Here's the choice we made. And most of them were like, I understand. So what sorts of safeguards could you put in place to, like, let your you're, – you're about to double your staff in that particular office to handle that client. Um, in retrospect, what would you have done differently in terms of um, – like letting letting the new staff know, or is there are there any like contractual safeguards you can put in place with the client? Well, the, no the the only thing you can I mean I suppose you technically could with with a client put put something in place, but if if Fortune five hundred company decides not to pay you, how much how much how much you, you want to spend on lawyers? To, yeah. yeah, right. Um, no, the only thing you I mean what what really put them at the most risk is that client was ninety five or six percent of their revenue. So, so service businesses are brutal. I, I promised myself I'd never do another service business because you, you are completely reliant on, you know, with, whether you have clients or not. Um, and you're always chasing new stuff. It's always a hustle. Um, so so the, the thing to have done would, would be do everything we can to not have that office have so much exposure. But that said, you have a client come in they love that particular office. That office is really killing it. And I think that client went from, you know, probably a million or two to 10 and then was going to 20. And it was this big externality that happened. So, so I think, you know, part of it is diversify your revenue so you're not that exposed. Sure. So what, because there's just literally not enough money to pay the people. Like, you know, you know, payroll just evaporated for at least that amount of staff. What was uh, the major reason why that company decided to pull out at the last minute? Is it because they, they were It was just everyone too? Everyone was panicking. They, they yeah. were like, oh, the internet's over, mm-hmm. right? Because there was all the hype of, you know, getting in the dot-com boom. And then, and then when the market crashed, everyone's like, oh, all these companies are, like, the internet's going away. This is useless. We didn't feel that. Like, we knew what was going on. And nothing went away, but, but you know, big conservative companies were like, hey, we're going to pull back our investment in this because we're not sure if this thing's even real. And then, you know, slowly over the next two years, 
you know, companies started reinvesting and some didn't go away. And, and there were a decent amount of companies born after the dot-com bust because companies that came back in and said, hey, I have an actual business idea here that's not just a stupid, you know, what was the, the pets.com sock puppet thing, right? <laughs> um, you know, so, so I don't know, you know. So what happened to agency.com after that? So we... we uh, Ended up selling it back to Omnicom. So, so early in Agency.com's evolution, um, Omnicom made a minority investment in Agency.com and five other digital agencies, Razorfish, Organic. Uh, I forget who were the other couple in there. There were six of us. Um, and that one of the reasons we grew so quick, part of it was organic, and then part of it was we had access to Omnicom's bank. And so, so the way they set up their, their acquisitions, you know, you get access to their money and they incent you very strongly, go buy more companies, go, go grow as fast as possible. Because basically the way they do those deals that, you know, every dollar of revenue we bring in gives them $10 on their valuation, right? So, so they want you to come in and succeed. They, they're essentially a hands-off organization. They, 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 you know, sort of turn you loose and say, go get it. And, you know, they only get hands-on if things start going south. Um, so we ended up selling it to them in 2002. And is that when you walked away from it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so what happened in the, the layoffs are really interesting. Like that first layoff was a very discreet thing. Then it started to be we need to look at just, just revenue was, you know, sort of going down across the board. The first set of cuts, other, that office one was really hard because that was a bunch of really valuable people. The first set of cuts is really easy. You lop off the bottom 10% of, you know, bottom 10% of the performers. Then it starts to get really ugly because then you start saying, okay, who are our most expensive people? Well, your most expensive people are, are generally the ones that have been there the longest. So you start cutting the soul out of the company and you start cutting the expertise out of the company. Um, and, and, you know, by the time we got to 450, essentially what was left was a bunch of brand new hires, some very financially driven, you know, executive management and the company that I started had no interest in having me be a part of it. Cause I was always looking at how do we innovate? How do we do the next thing? And you know, the company needed, we build websites, nothing more, nothing fancy. You want a website? We'll build that for you. Right. And that, that was the key to survival, but I couldn't survive mm. in that. Was that hard? Was it hard to transition out of, you mentioned you were the chief of innovation or cre chief, chief creative officer, chief creative into the chief people officer, which obviously have two fairly different roles was, I mean, you, you wanted to keep innovating and doing new things and adapting and evolving, but you were kind of just forced into a position because I, for, for me, it was, it was exciting because, because we had done so little of building the people organization, the HR organization, um, it was like inventing a new company. Like, uh, you know, I was, I was figuring things out and hiring people and sort of inventing new ways of doing things, which actually weren't new. They were just like, you know, the way you do things. Just figuring uh, out how to just, how just figuring, but, yeah. but, but, you know, for me personally, like it was a very creative exercise. It was two years of intensely creative, you know, problem solving and, you know, we built this internal university called Inspire U, which is peer-to-peer -peer learning thing. So figuring that out and how to roll that out and then seeing it roll out and, you know, and actually getting people where, where when they started, you know, they were really excited to be there. Like, you know, so, so and again, it was as a co-founder, it was very personal to me. Like the fact that we were screwing up people's lives was like this really panicky moment that I didn't see coming. Um and so, so I was very, 
you know, sort of personally attached to fixing that, you know, I, I think it was a natural place that we got to. Um, but, but so no, I didn't, I didn't find that, um, I didn't find that hard at all. I found it more hard when, when, when that HR stuff got kind of stabilized, I stepped into more of like an innovation role. And, and the first thing that goes in a company is the chief innovation officer because everyone says they love innovation, uh -huh. but the reality is is that no one really loves innovation because it's threatening to the status quo, right? Yeah, it's scary. So, it just so, sounds cool. Yeah, so, so when the industry got a little skittery like that, nobody wanted innovation. So, so that, that's when it got hard, where like I can't even get invited to a meeting in the company I started. That was hard. Because nobody needed it. Clients weren't asking for innovation. They were like, here's 50 grand, go build me a website that's and shut gotta, the fuck up. Yeah, that's got to be hard because <laughs> that's, that's one of the things that entrepreneur, like one of well, the that's, common, yeah. that's the common ground we all share is we want to change the status quo. And that's your child telling you to fuck off at yeah, that point. Yeah, exactly. And, and what I knew was, I knew in my head that I could, I could stay on and essentially just take a nice salary and sit in an office and twiddle my thumbs. Um, but like the thought of doing that for two or three years until it came back around was just like, ah, fuck that. I'd rather go start something else. And what was that? What was the next thing? The next thing was a company called Invention Asylum, which so so I, it, it was an invention company. And it was I, I, I basically wanted to get as far away from a service business as I could because just a service business is really just a hustle all the time. And so I was going to do a licensing thing and, and invent like you know as seen on tv kind of kitchen and tools and toys and just stupid shit and just had a blast and then ended up bringing on a founder who was um a super nice guy but not a great operations guy so i just blew a ton of money on you know <laughs> just salaries and buying crap to invent things and flying around to try to do meetings and like you know it was a mess so anyway you know, that's one of the things that happens when you have an exit. There's there's sort of this dual thing of you think like, well, I did it once, I'll do it again. So 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 there's sort of this internal fantasy that anything I put my mind to, I can do that again, which is bullshit. <laughs> and <laughs> and and then and then there's another piece of it, which is people outside of you don't tell you that your idea is stupid because they're like, well, he did it before. He must know what's going on. This must be a great idea. So there's, so, so there's like, and, and my wife would tell me, um, I'm pretty sure like, you know, this is not the right partner for you and this is a stupid fucking idea and you're not going to make any money. And I'd be like, oh, honey, please. You know, because you can talk to your, your loved ones in a way that you would never talk to to someone else. And so I just sort of barreled through it. And, and there, there was probably a good five or six year period after agency.com where I was doing these startups that had no chance of going anywhere. And I just got increasingly depressed because it just became really clear. Yeah. You like, like agency.com agency was very much sort of right team, but right place, right time. Yeah. It sounds it, like your timing was spot timing on. Timing was yeah. like, like four months later, it mm -hmm. wouldn't have been the same thing. And four months earlier, it wouldn't have been the mm -hmm. same thing. It was, you know, we were in New York City. We were right in the right thing with just the right partners, the right connections. Um, so, so, so there was there there was a huge piece of serendipity to that. But, but you know, there, it was really hard to escape the little ego piece of well, I can do it again. 
Do, right. Did you feel like your identity was tied to this thing of being an entrepreneur, these, you know, being that I don't know of, if it's tied to being an entrepreneur, but my identity very much gets tied to whatever I put yeah. my mind yeah. to doing. Yeah. Like, like my current thing is very personal to me. And like when someone says I don't like it or a client leaves us, like it's... It's I, an extension of yourself. I have to, I have to consciously go, that ain't you. Mm-hmm. That's... You know what I mean? So, so yeah, I take all this stuff very personally. And mm-hmm. I always have. Mm-hmm. I did when we were doing plays. I did when we were doing agency.com. There's a funny thing that happens, and, and I think this is probably decently universal. You found a company, if the, mind, the, the smallest little thing goes bad, like a client leaves you or a client doesn't renew, the emotional impact it has on me is, oh, my God, we're going out of business. So, like, so when, when victories come... They don't sink in very hard because, you know, you land a big client and you're like, well, that it's just the beginning or it's just small or you, you find ways to justify not getting too excited about it because um, it's not really enough revenue to, to totally change the game, right? So, so it's hard to accept the victories. And then when you lose even the smallest little thing, um, it feels like, oh, my God, the company's going to end. And, it, right. and, it's, yeah. and it's, I'm, constantly, I'm constantly in a dialogue battling battling that piece of not taking things too personally. And I, mean, I think that's probably just me. I don't know that, that that's all entrepreneurs, but... but it seems, it, it, I think, pretty prevalent in the entrepreneurship. I, I mean, the one thing that I do feel very passionate about is you should not start a company unless you can't think of anything else you'd rather mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Like, when I think about Storyvine right now, and, and like if we were to get to a point where we run out of money... I asked, I, and this has happened a number of times. Eric, you and I have talked about this a number of times over the years. I ask myself, what would I, if I weren't doing Storyvine, what would I do? And the answer is Storyvine. Mm-hmm. Like, like it would just look different mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be getting paid. And I, but, but there's something about what it is that I want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think that's critical because as, as the company either succeeds, which is really challenging, or starts to fail, which is really challenging, you hit, you know, consistent, constant moments of existential crisis, and if you if you're not connected to it, I don't know how you survive that. Yeah. So let's talk about Storyvine. When did you start it? Why did you start it? And what is it? Well, so so what Storyvine is is it's a a video platform. It's a guided video platform. We figured out a way to automate um, video production. So we allow our clients to um, have their customers or their employees or their executives um, use our app, which guides them through telling a specific story. So, so we do a lot of work in healthcare and pharma. So Pfizer's a client. So if Pfizer wants their patients to talk about, you know, what's it like to have this disease, our app will actually guide that patient through a step-by-step storytelling process. When were you diagnosed and how did it feel? How have you been treating it? What are your hopes and dreams for the future? So it's the step-by-step process. Um, and then those clips go up to the cloud, and five minutes later, you've got a fully edited video. Um, so it's this automated thing. So, so that, that's what it is. And, and we do a lot of work in healthcare and pharma, um, doing patient videos, um, what they call KOL videos, so key opinion leader videos, physicians talking about a condition or a treatment. Um, they're using it for internal executive communications, things like that. So that's one category we're in. Uh, we just moved into political advocacy and nonprofit work, and and that's kind of been an extension. A lot of our pharma clients would be like, "Oh, you should talk to this advocacy group we work with," and 
And so, so we've sort of dipped our toe in the water there and been very successful. And as you can imagine, advocates are like, wait, you have a tool that can help me scale video storytelling? Can we do more of that? You know, so, Talk louder, scream louder, yeah, tell yeah, more people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so the answer, the, 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 uh, how they look at the tool is, is, is really different than, than pharma, um, but it's really powerful. So, so that's what it is. Um, how it started, um, YouTube came out in 2005 and one of the things that really struck me about the content that was on YouTube at the time was that 95% of it sucked. And this, is, this is actually, this goes back to, there's a corollary to agency.com. Our original corporate motto for agency.com was figure out what sucks, don't do that. Because it was, the industry was so simple at the time, nobody knew what they were doing. So all you had to do was just suck a little bit less than the other guy and you would kill it. <laughs> so, so YouTube came out and, and, and so I recognized most of the videos on there were really bad. And there, there were some exceptions. Um, Kid and cat and dog videos were fine. <laughs> People getting hit in the nuts were fine, right? Because they kind of tell their own story. So there's a lot of that stuff, and uh -huh. that was all good. And, and then anything that was put up by a professional was fine. But, but like the other 95% was just like, you know, hitting the record button is not storytelling. Mm -hmm. It was just bad. And so what I recognized was story structure was missing. And, and kind of the epiphany I had was no one had done for short form video what had evolved for traditional TV and film, like the 30 minute sitcom format or the one hour drama format or mm -hmm. the two hour movie. So I had done screenplays before. So I thought that, that sort of level of structural thinking about storytelling didn't exist. So I, so I said, wait a minute, if, if you could give someone narrative training wheels and give, the, give them the structure, so pre-structure a little show, um, then maybe you could scale it. And it was, it was largely inspired, um, you guys are probably too young to remember this. There was a YouTube show that was kind of the first viral hit called Lonely Girl 17. And it was this weekly video confessional show of this girl who was 17, I guess, sitting on the end of her bed. And she would just sort of say what she did for the week and talk about how she felt. And it, it got, you know, hundreds of thousands of views. I don't think millions were possible then, but maybe it was millions. But it got a lot. And, and it was getting a lot of press and a lot of play. And then rumors started popping out that maybe it was professionally produced. And it turns out two screenwriters were behind it. Hmm. And so, so I thought, wow, that's brilliant. If you could create a show like that, for one person, you could do it for 10,000. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So in 2006, I started a company called Episodic Studios, which was that. Mm -hmm. it, it was highly structured, highly templatized, short form original content that was intended to be distributed on YouTube. Um, and I was pitching CNN about doing political coverage this way. I took, you know, I had, I had contacts from when I did agency.com. So I was, I was making all the calls I could, right? Mm -hmm. I was pitching NASCAR about doing fan, fan generated shows. I ended up getting hired um, by a guy named Gordon Patterson, who was the head of marketing at New Line Cinema. And he said, okay, go ahead and do this. So I'm like, all right, we're off to the races. This thing's great. And in the middle of producing my first episode of my first show, I had this brick face in a brick wall moment where I'm like, oh my God, this will never scale. Because what I realized was as long as you're having to manually film people, and manually take those raw assets and get them off of one hard drive and onto another hard drive, or, you know, whatever it was. And as long as you have to manually edit, like you're going to have to edit this podcast because I stumble and mumble and right. Um, 
as long as you have to manually edit stuff, there's no way to to actually scale and do lots and lots of those sh shows any more efficiently than just traditional video production. So I finished that first job for New Line and I shut the company down. And um, and and I ended up going and working for Gordon. He he started a, an entertainment marketing uh, company, and I went and did a bunch of that stuff for five years. And and then I had a follow-on epiphany, which is, what if you could automate all three of those major components: the the capture of the video itself, the management of the assets, and the editing. If you could if you could automate those three, then you could potentially build something that is a scalable video storytelling, video storytelling at scale kind of company. And that was, so, so, so Storyvine was founded in May of 2012. So we just celebrated our seventh year anniversary and that's what we've built. We've got a patented technology that actually does that and it's really cool. And, and now the challenge is Storyvine very much solves something that people want, which is they want more video, they want more authentic video, but they only know what they know. So they know there's professional video, which is always good, but you can't have very much of it because it's, it's expensive. Or they know that there's sort of phone video, user-generated content, which is always crappy and completely out of your control. So you can't really use that. So they're, so, so they're kind of living in this space where it's like, I want more video, I just don't know how to do it. So we can show up and say, actually, you can. Here's this thing that lives in the space between those two worlds. And that's, it's taken us a bunch of years to figure out how to talk about it, like how do, how do you tell someone what it is, is it has been a big challenge. And, and then figuring out four different industries, where's the actual value in it? So if I look at pharmaceutical marketers, they look at Storyvine and they're like, oh, I could get user-generated content in a safe way that I can get through legal compliance. So for them, if they can get 10 videos of, of patients authentically sharing their story, they're ecstatic. So, so for them, Storyvine kind of equals safe user-generated content. You go to political advocacy and they're like, wait, I could capture voices from all over Colorado talking about their position on fracking. Uh, I want as much as I can. So the, like the value proposition shifts dr dramatically depending on the use case in the industry. Mm -hmm. So sort of figuring that out has been interesting. Mm -hmm. so, so tell us a little bit about your business model. I'm, I'm like, do, are, you, are you specifically working with enterprise clients? Right like, now we're enterprise, yeah. Okay. So the, kind of the three-year vision is Storyvine will look a lot more like WordPress, where it'll be kind of like, you know, log in to the story store, pick your template. I'm a dentist. You know, I want a patient testimonial. Swipe your credit card and go. Um, right now, it's, it's more bespoke. So when we work with Pfizer, we'll, we'll figure out what kind of stuff they want to do. We charge them an annual fee. Um, that includes uh, software licenses, unlimited videos, all the setup, all the, you know, creative input and things like that. So it's, it's a subscription model right now. I feel like... And we're increasingly automating things. Got it. So while, while you're sitting here talking about this and I, 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 kept looking, I keep looking back at like who wants to tell compelling stories but suck at telling stories. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, I think one of the bigger groups of those people are probably entrepreneurs. Yeah. Weird, weirdly enough, it's like, I want to tell a compelling story about this new idea for a business that I have and, yep. and, and the the uh, success of my business or the ability to raise money in the startup phase completely depends on telling a compelling story. Very much. Um, do you do you typically target and find groups that are sucky at telling stories and help them tell better stories, or how's it? I, I think we probably will when we get to a more automated solution. You know, right right now it's like you know who who can we talk to that you know ha have 
communications or marketing budgets big enough to you know to to justify an investment in something like this. So so in general, they have to be doing you know they tend to be decently large scale companies. Political advocacy that's changed a bit, and we've we've um, created a product that's lower price and less customized. Um, the the interesting thing about people not being good at telling their story, they don't necessarily know that, and they don't necessarily want to deal with that. So or face that fact. Or face that fact. So, so if I create a tool tomorrow that says, hey, entrepreneurs, here's a template that's going to make it really easy for you to do a company synopsis or a founder intro video or something like that, a handful of people would pick up that and go, but likely not many. Because everyone's like, well, yeah, I know how to do that. I don't need a video right now. Like, right? That said, if we do a deal with, you know, um, some incubator or some, you know, That's what I was thinking funding about. group that makes it a requirement that part mm-hmm. of the process is um, you need to do an introduction video. That's part of the screening process. So here's this written ap- application. Here's, here's the other one. I just talked to someone <clears throat> from the FDA that said for small device companies, one of the challenges the FDA is facing right now is that small device companies have a really hard time just articulating what is the problem you solve in a simple way. So we were talking about the possibility of using Storyvine to simplify that process, just to synopsize a solution you know, that would accompany a 500-page application. Um, so, so I think there's absolutely value there, but, but I think there's either got to be internal pressure to want to tell the stories or there's got to be some sort of requirement to do it. And the internal pressure, we had a client um, that produced a drug that prevented drug overdoses, opioid overdoses. And they reached out to us because their customers were saying, we're dying to tell our stories. Give us a tool. Give us a way to tell our stories. And so in that case, they used Storyvine as a tool to let their customers tell their stories. That was really powerful. But there, there was sort of an internal pressure. So... I want to get a little bit. You, you and I uh, get together every couple of months and yeah. have drink. conversations about. Oh yes, talk. <laughs> and we drink a lot. <laughs> uh, but and we've known each other for I don't know three, four, five years. Um, but Storyvine's been on this sort of journey. Yeah, uh, you've been. There's high months. There's low months. There's. Yeah. Um, as we used to joke about when we and we were talking about earlier, there's the Harley and the stick pony. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So talk talk a little bit about that Harley and stick pony journey with Storyvine. Uh, okay. So the the Harley and the stick pony journey. So we, we Eric and I were were, were talking about uh, you know whatever our frustrations or our elations with the the companies we were a part of. And I I'll take credit for coming up with it, but you probably came up with the idea, but I'll take credit for it. Yeah, it, it was yours. You're the creative guy, <laughs> okay, right? Yeah. I just bought the yeah. inflatable stick pony. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, so what we talked about was when, you, when you're doing a startup, you kind of, sometimes you feel like a rock star. You feel like you're riding down the, the highway on, this, on a, just a bitchin' Harley. Zed's Wah! dead, baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Zed's dead, baby. Like, yeah, you totally feel like Bruce Willis, like yeah. just blasting off on the Harley. <laughs> And then there's other times where you're like, you're riding around on a stick pony, like the duck. Monty Python. Yeah. <laughs> Monty Python, like, yeah, like pretending like you've got a company. Uh-huh. And, and, it, and, it's, it, and, it, and it really very much is these wild oscillations between the two. And, and, and sometimes even within the same day, like you'll close a big client and then you'll realize your app doesn't work. Or, or mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, you've got, you know, two other clients are pissed off because AWS is down, but you're getting blamed for it, right? 
And and so you re, you realize in that moment, oh, we don't actually have real technology. We've got sort of this duct tape ball of crap. So then you're back on the stick pony. And so Eric actually bought me an inflatable stick pony for my office, just to remind, Love just it. to keep me humble. If, <laughs> if I'm ever feeling too Harley like, just remember you're you're Stop sort that. of a call away from being on the pony. So where are you guys at right now with that? Because you know, I know about six months ago we were talking and, and things are kind of on the up and up, and then we got together two months ago, and it was like I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall. So where where are you right now in the Harley Stick Pony yeah. ups and downs? I feel like we're on a maybe an electric scooter. Okay, like like it's not hard. It's not Vespa cool. It's not Vespa cool, <laughs> and it, it ain't anywhere near Harley. But but um, we're we're actually in a in an in a, in a good place. Um. If we close three extra clients, we blow our numbers out of the water. If we close f- three fewer clients, we miss our numbers dramatically. So the oscillations are really wild. So, so one of the things that's happened, you know, we, we made a conscious choice to, to stop going after investment at the end of 2017. We had a bunch of false starts in 2017, which you and I talked about some of that. Some, some of it was really just painful, like, you know, we thought we were going to go, you know, we thought we were going to get a big investment, then it went away. Then we thought it came back, then it went away. So, so at the end of 2017, we said that was a major distraction. And so what we're going to focus on is revenue. So, so in 2018, we said, let's just double down, just put our heads down and just go heavy on sales. Um, and so it, it really took us 2018 to, to um, stop spending more than we had. So we had to, we had to cut some staff. We had to, to just dramatically lower tech development. We just went heavy into sales. So it took us all of 2018 to really sort of turn the ship. Even in a small company, when, when you know, you're dealing with a decent amount of revenue, you, it takes a while to turn the ship. And then so the other thing that we did in 2018, we started experimenting with four new target categories. One of those was political advocacy, and that really took off. By the end of 2018, I think we had 15 or 20 political advocacy clients. And so beginning of this year, um, we really targeted that as a second market. Um, and, uh, and so, and so what that's doing is it's kind of normalizing the revenue. So, so the, the, the revenue swings are not quite as dramatic. So with the healthcare and pharma, those contracts tend to be a bit bigger, but there's a lot more time in between closing them and the political advocacy things are smaller, but there's more of them and and they kind of trickle in. So it's kind of normalized the revenue a bit. So I feel like we've definitely turned the corner. We're profitable. Um, we're not, we're not relying on outside, um, you know, uh, funding or debt we're in fact we're paying off debt so we have a plan to be you know debt free as a company by the first quarter of next year which is huge um and and uh and and you know and and now it starts to be the game of okay can you now actually start to accelerate revenue and if you can then it starts to look interesting as an investment vehicle again right and so so if we can accelerate our revenue then we can likely get you know probably series a and then then we can really start to accelerate things and go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we asked you a few questions before you came in, um, and I want to dig into some of these things that you've kind of touched on uh, throughout um, these different stories about your different startups. But one of the boxes you checked on here uh, when we asked kind of about what are some of the topics that we might discuss here, and these are things from relationships, mental health, co-founders and partners, et cetera. One of them you checked on here is loneliness. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a common you know, a lot of entrepreneurs uh, will kind of share and I often feel sort of isolated and there's not a lot I can share with others. What is, why did you click loneliness? What does that mean for you? Hmm. Um, the good news about what's going on right now with 
the opioid crisis and a lot of these shootings going on in the country, if there's a silver lining to that, there's a lot more talk of mental health. So I, so I, I feel like there's a piece of this which is there's, there's much more awareness that it's lonely, which is completely independent from how lonely it is. Right. Right. So it's like, I feel like if I, you know, if, if I, if I, if I felt like I needed to reach out for help, I would, or if I, if, if I wanted to get into a group to, to talk about that piece of it, I could, but, but I think the loneliness comes from, you know, you're in a constant state of problem solving and, and ideally you're doing that with your team, but, but, you know, in the case of Storyvine, we're, we're punching above our weight. Like, you know, Pfizer's a client, Novartis is a client, and, and Merck is a client. Like, we, we have, you know, big organizations that we work with. And we very clearly defined our roles. We're a small company. We've got, we just added a fifth person, but, you know, Monique, my co-founder, is the chief operations officer. So she primarily does sales process. I'm sort of innovator, product guy, you know, dog and pony sales. Like I do the, the pitches. Then we have an account person and we have someone who builds templates and we just brought on a salesperson. So our roles are very, very distinct. So, so there's, and, and, and the company's seven years old. So we kind of figured out what we have and how we're selling it. So, so it's not like every day is a big collaboration fest. Every day is kind of like everyone's got their head down doing their work. So there's a loneliness to that, even within a small company, now that it's decently defined, people are doing their jobs. So that's kind of lonely. There's another piece of it which might just be something I have to deal with. When it's going really well, I'm really reticent to say to, when someone says, hey, how's it going? Say, yeah, we're killing it. Like, I, I find it hard to do that, especially when we are. <laughs> like, it's almost easier to go, hey, things are great when you're not feeling that way. Um, that, than when you are, because I, I think the myth of entrepreneurship is that, oh, you start this company and you're going to make millions. So, so I have this sort of reticence to talk about when it's going well. And I don't think most people want to hear that it's not going well. Like people, it, it's just like in life, someone mm -hmm. says, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't want you to go, I've got a migraine and I'm really depressed. They mm -hmm. don't, they, they just want to, you know, they just want to connect. There's one group in particular that wants to hear when it's not going well, which is entrepreneurs, because it's most of the time not fucking going well. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but, and that's the thing. So, so I work in the Catalyst HTI building and, and there's, and I'm on the fourth floor, which is a lot of startups there. So that actually does help. I, th I, think, I think some co-working spaces to me feel um, counterproductive because they're so chaotic and, and, and so many people are sort of jammed in such a small space um, that it feels distracting to me. But I do like being in the presence of other entrepreneurs and small companies um, because then when someone asks you the question, how's it going, you can say, oh, I've got this big pitch and, and we either nailed it or not, or, or, or they say, oh, we're really struggling with revenue. And, and you can actually just sit down and have a conversation about it as, a, as opposed to digging into the emotional side of it, just the ability to sit down and have the conversation. I, I find that very therapeutic, like talking about the feelings about it doesn't really serve anything. I still have problems to solve. I still got a business to run. So, so I think part of the isolation is you're just busy all the time and, and you know, your mind is consumed with, like I'm in a really interesting place right now where we're, we're at a time in our season where the, the activity has slowed down a little bit. And whenever that happens, I start thinking of new ideas. So I'm in this really weird place where I've got 
five or six big new strategic ideas that are unformed but feel significant. And then I look at the business as it is today and it feels completely inadequate. And I, so, so I look at the business today and I'm like, oh, Jesus, that, i got to sell that. I want to go sell this thing that's in my head right now, but it, that doesn't exist, right? So, and, and, and sort of swinging back and forth between those two modes is, is all-consuming. And so I, I think there's just an isolation in if, if you're actually focusing on the business, there's not a lot of room to focus on other stuff, including people. So are you, is it hiring employees or other people to focus on the nitty gritty aspects and the kind of day to day stuff help you so you can still focus on some of the bigger innovations? I think, I think when you get to a certain size, we're, yeah. we're not at that size right now. Got it. I think, I think, you know, once you get sort of north of, north of 15 and approach 20, 25 people, then it kind of stabilizes as an operating unit. You know enough what you have and you know what the roles are and you've got managers in there. Then I think you can truly focus on on the bigger stuff. But but when you're small, it's you know if if we lose two of our big clients, it's all hands on deck to go try to fill that revenue gap. And like anything you might have been thinking about strategically, it goes right out the window. Hmm. Um, you mentioned something in here too: the enthusiasm chasm. Oh yeah. So <laughs> what is that? So so the enthusiasm chasm was when when we first started Storyvine. Um, we didn't have any technology, um, but we had an idea. And, and the basic idea is we make it really easy for you to make video, right? And every, everyone we talked to was like, oh, video is cool. I want more video. You do video. Let's do this. And, and because I've been thinking about it since essentially 2005 and, and you know, technically, like for, for most of my professional life, some version of this has been in my head. I would get in those sales conversa- those early sales conversations and I would say, well, you could do this and you could do that. And then they'd go, oh, well, if you could do that, then you could do this. And if you could do that, you could do this. And within an hour, we would be like chain- solving world peace and hunger <laughs> and the Gates Foundation was going to be a uh-huh. small pimple on the butt of what we were about to build. Uh-huh. And then we would leave the room and we wouldn't hear from them for three months. Mm-hmm. And, and we're like, what is this gap? Mm-hmm. What is this gap between they were ready to change the world with us? And, and what we learned was when the vision is too big, in the absence of you driving the vision, they don't even remember what the fuck the company was. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, I, it was some sort of video thing. You make videos, right? Are you a video production company? Like we would have these conversations where they didn't have any, they, they remembered it being an exciting conversation but they could not make the leap from what they were excited about to how they would actually incorporate it into their business. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that's actually been tough for me, which is I have, to, I have to dramatically ratchet back where my head is with what I want to do with the company and, and somehow find a way to not feel like it's less than. Mm-hmm. Because it is still really remarkable when we can walk into you know, a nonprofit organization and say, hey, you're going to have people from all over the country talk about your issue in this really powerful way, um, you know, next week. Mm-hmm. And, and their minds are blown. And like, I'm thinking like, well, you could, you know, you could create street teams and you could do this and you could leverage the content this way and that way. And, but but if, we have, if we have conversations that are bigger than where our clients are, they, they can't make the leap to get mm-hmm. there. So, so for me, throttling back 
that conversation has been a real key to success in sales. Mm -hmm. Start with what's what's a small little project that you could do tomorrow. You'd know exactly how you would use Storyvine. Mm -hmm. They always have an answer for that. Yeah. And even if it's small, now they're starting to get their head around it, and they can then make the leap on here's how we might use it in the future. Yeah. That's actually really exciting. And what I hear but that took me two years. Yeah. yeah. What three. I hear you saying in that is you got to focus on the nuts and bolts of what your company does, and make sure that they don't lose sight of that. Yeah. So that you can actually get the contract, get the client, get the paycheck coming in the door, the revenue coming in the door, so that then over time you can begin to sort of seed that enthusiasm and continue to build around it. Yeah, that's, you, that's you and totally I have it. those conversations all the time where it's like, well, what if Storyvine went and did X, Y, and Z? And in the nonprofit space, it's like deploy it into the Congo and let the people on the ground tell the story, the yeah. true story of what's happening yeah. there. And imagine what, and we go on these like and ten, thirty minutes, ten thousand of yeah. those come in every month, uh -huh. and, and you've got a whole team. And suddenly, them. world peace is solved. Yeah, and and what the phrase that I've come up with is we have to earn the right to be able to do projects like that. Yeah. And we have to earn the right on two levels. One is we need to be in business, right? So we need to earn enough money to be in business to be able to do those projects. And then we need to learn enough about how you would actually execute something like that, mm -hmm. that we can be a partner in that. Or, or maybe that's a project we end up doing. Maybe mm -hmm. we spin up some version of Storyvine that does these bigger, you know, sort of high scale projects that you know, other people aren't thinking about because they don't know it's possible. Yeah. So, but but we need to earn the right to be there. Yeah. This is uh, this has been so awesome, so insightful. Great. Um, I'm Thank gonna, you. I'm going to ask a uh, a depressing question that we all, that we ask kind of toward the end of each interview, which right. is, when's the last time you thought about quitting? In this business, I haven't. Wow. Now, in this business, I have. <laughs> okay, here's a pathology. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is fat. So, so, so I'll share, and I know we're sort of tight on time, but you can edit it. Um, <laughs> it's fine. 2014, we raised our seed round. We raised like 900 grand. We hired six or seven people. We built some technology. I got to play. So, so we were pitching everything from small businesses to pharma companies and everything in between, and we ran out of money. So we fired all of the staff except for my co-founder and I. She and I cut our salaries in half. I was not making a livable wage. So the entire year of 2015 and about half of 2016 was a daily existential crisis. Mm. And, and I know the conversation because I had it every morning, like you know, most mornings for, for that sort of 18-month period. So I didn't feel like quitting, but I would wake up in the morning and the first thing that popped in my head is, I don't want to go. And then what would pop in my head was the follow-on piece of, if you don't go, Storyvine doesn't exist. Because we were a two-person company. Like that's One of the other things about small companies is you, you sometimes forget how fragile they are. The only reason it exists is because people show up to a place and agree that it exists. And, and so, <laughs> that's, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Right? Yeah. And, and so every morning would be like, I don't want to go. And then I would like, if you don't, it doesn't exist. And then I would have the true exist existential piece, which is, is this just your ego or is this actually a good idea? And I would think on that. And every morning I'm like, I think this is a good idea. I would get out of bed and I would go. So the closest I came to wanting to quit was, the day before, Monique had told me, yeah, we're, we're pretty much out of money. I don't think we have two weeks left like of, of any. Like, we're not taking payroll, and I'm pretty sure we need to tell our investors it's over. So the next morning, I woke up, and I had my, my little conversation with myself. I don't want to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I got in the car, and I thought, 
I was living in Boulder at the time, so I had to commute to Denver, so I had half an hour to think about this. I thought, I'm going to have to say the words out loud, how do we shut the company down? And so on my drive on the way from Boulder to Denver, I was like, how do we shut the company down? And then I went to, well, what am I going to do? And then the answer that came back was, I would do Storyvine. Yeah, yeah. And then that was wh- something that resonated with me about what you said yeah. earlier. And, yeah, exactly. and, and then I went to, oh, wait a minute. Okay, if we don't take any sal- – this is the pathology part. If we don't take any salaries, I bet that the amount of money we just spend on like AWS servers isn't that much. So by the time I got to the office half an hour later, like from starting from we need to shut the company down to the half hour later when I showed up, I said to Monique, how much do we actually spend in cash to run the business? And she said about 2500 a month. I'm like, okay, like you can find that, you know, and you're mm. like <laughs> with – I'm like, okay, so Storyvine still exists. So, so I went right to sort of a, just a different kind of survival mode. Okay, there's going to be a version of Storyvine where there's no employees, no salary, but I'm still going to do this. So, so for me, but again, that gets back to like, like Storyvine is one of those ideas. I started it in 2006. I shut that company down. I went away for five years. It came back. Like it hasn't left me alone. So I actually feel really fortunate and lucky that I have that. Like, mm-hmm. like it is so clear to me that I need to be a part of this mm-hmm. and, and I don't even know what it is yet. Um, that, that, so I've, I haven't really had that moment of I want to quit. I've had the moment of I don't want to do this anymore. But the answer to what I would do if I weren't doing this was this. Wow. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, that, that's, I think, a really special place to be. Yeah, I think a great you. place yeah, to end. It is. Too. I feel very lucky. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming, man. This has been a lot of fun. There, I feel like there's a thousand things we can continue kind of diving into, and so maybe we'll have to do this again. All right, we'll do the we'll do the follow up. Family, your wife, co-founders, team. Oh I mean, yeah, there's, there's, all, there's a whole ton of shit we can talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's how do you juggle all that stuff? Uh-huh. And, yeah, and I think right now because we're in sort of an electric scooter phase, <laughs> I think you should either get me at the stick uh-huh. pony phase uh-huh. or at the Harley phase. Like, Just I send think me I a text <laughs> when you're at stick pony phase of you riding the stick pony. We'll get you in here immediately. Exactly. Exactly. We'll have. Follow up. <laughs> It'll either be really good or really bad. <laughs> All right, good. Thanks, Pleasure, guys. Thanks, appreciate it. All right, cheers.